Amen. You may be seated. I pray that you are singing your testimony. You are confident in God's grace to you in Christ and that He has fully paid for all of your sin. We are going to expand upon that topic this morning. This will be an extended, many times on confession, on a communion Sundays, one of the things we've done in the past was a confession of sin and assurance of pardon. And today is just an expansion of that. Um, I hope and pray that every Sunday you are preparing your hearts to come to worship. And then on the, on the Lord's Day when we celebrate communion, that you are preparing your hearts to come and receive communion. Uh, but I know sometimes life is hectic, and even if that hasn't been the practice this week, hopefully this will prepare us well for the supper that we are about to take. I'm going to read from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. We're taking a break from Romans this morning, and then we will move there. The Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's come down on Mount Sinai to meet with them. And to give them His ten words, His ten commandments, His law that will shape them. Verse 1 in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those or thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus far, God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit might powerfully attend Your Word, that You might apply your commandments to our hearts, that if we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, that you would bring conviction and repentance, a deliverance from trusting in self to trusting in Christ, and those of us who do know you, that we would just be grown in the grace of depending fully upon you and resting 
in your grace and not hoping in our performance. So may the Spirit attend the Word as it goes forth. May you bless the preaching and the hearing of the very Word of God. Help us this morning to honor and to love you. We trust you for it. We pray for it and trust for it in Christ's holy name. Amen. I know one of the things I used to hate about school was pop quizzes. Well, you hated them when you wasn't ready, didn't you? If you were ready, okay, bring it on. Well, that's the question I'm asking you this morning. Are you ready? Do you pass the test? Do you know the Ten Commandments? Do you know what they mean? Do you know how they apply to you? So this morning is a pop quiz. It's a pop test just to help us to prepare to take the supper. So um, I'm going to be asking you some questions. And uh, I want you to look up at me when I ask them and not at your Bible. Right? But just remember, as we, as we, and listen, let me stop and give you one more reminder. Get a pen and get ready. The reason there's nothing written on your bulletin is so that you can write on your bulletin. Get your pen and get ready because I want you to be able to take these things home and think about them. And remember, we've talked about this before. When we're preaching the commandments of God, remember when one sin is forbidden, the opposite duty is required. And all sins that are like that sin are forbidden. So when a sin is forbidden, the corresponding duty is commanded, and all like sins are forbidden. Think about these commandments, if you know the difference between a genus and species. Think of these commandments as the genus of all sin, and underneath them will fit all sins that we could ever commit under these ten words, or ten commandments. There are going to be a lot more that we could say. As If we're going to move through all ten, you know I'm not going to say everything you hope I might say. But that's to push you into further study. If you, want to, if you want to read an expanded treatment of the Ten Commandments, both the duties that these commands require and the sins that they forbid, I would point you to the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Go read near, it's, it's after question 100, maybe 110 and following somewhere in there. You can go read those questions and, and it will ask and answer those questions and you'll get far more depth there than we can give this morning. We're going to summarize this morning. But remember, these commandments, we have no definition of sin without His commandments. His commandments define sin and they define righteousness. They define what we're not and what Christ is and who we are. There's a lot that we can say about that. But sin is lack, any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And I'm holding forth the main point to the end. This is not a typical sermon. Okay? So here's your first question. Look up at me. What is the first commandment? Good. The first commandment. You can look back at your Bible if you want to. One God. You shall have no other gods before me. And think about this commandment as the foundation for everything that follows in the Ten Commandments. This is, this is setting the stage. This is the foundation for all the others. There is only, look at me, this may be too narrow for you, but this is proven true by the resurrection of Christ. There is only one true God. Creator, sustainer, sovereign Lord, ruler, gracious, merciful, holy, righteous. 
You fill in the attributes, and those are not parts of God that make him up, but that's another sermon. There's only one true God and one true Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he gives, this one true God gives a loving, objective, moral code that is true and binding for all people everywhere. How in the world could that be? Well, this law was what was written on Adam's heart when he was created. And it's still, as a human, as human beings being created in the image of God, that law is what informs the conscience of those created in the image of God. Sure, sin has marred it, but it has not eradicated it. And we have one God who gives an objective, binding moral code that is true and binding for all people. Remember, if there is no God, there is no morality. Only opinion. You have no foundation for proving Hitler wrong if there is no God. You, you can say, well, most people think he was wrong, or well, most people thought he was right in that time, in, in that country. If there is no God, there is no morality, there is no right and wrong, only opinions. But there is a God, the true and living God, revealed in Scripture, proved true by the resurrection of His Son. We'll talk more about that later. And our duty under the first commandment is to worship God alone. We were built for worship. We were created to be worshipers. We worship by default. You are worshiping something this morning. It might be yourself. It might be your children. Danger. It might be your grandchildren. It might be your car or your house or your spouse. We are worshiping something. And God has come in grace. He has redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He's applying to them the law that was written on Adam's heart. The law that He says when He gives us a new heart, He will write on our hearts in the new covenant in conversion. And our duty under this first commandment is to worship God alone. And when it says, no other gods before me, it's not suggesting that other gods actually exist. But it's saying that Yahweh is the true And only God, and we are to worship and serve Him alone. To find our satisfaction, our meaning, our hope, our purpose, our joy, our delight in Him. So our duty is to worship, love, trust, find satisfaction in, and obey Him out of joy over all. Out of love. What is the summary of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with most of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And neighbor as yourself. The two sort of segments of the commandments, if you want to. So here's, here's just a quick application of the first commandment. Are there things in your life that you love more than God? Are there things in your life that you trust more than God? Are there things in your life that you find satisfaction in more than God? Are there things in your life that you obey more than God? Are there things that you hope for more than God? Listen, what this commandment does for us is it asks us the question, who or what do you really worship? And in love, God points us to Himself. 
as the object of worship, as the source of all joy and satisfaction. It would be unloving for him to point us anywhere else. Why? Because he is God. He is the only true and living God. The only Savior there. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment uh, shows us who to worship. Second commandment shows us how to worship. Okay? So what is the second commandment? This is a little more complicated. Look up at me. Summarize it. No idols. That's good. We're not to make images and we're not to bow down and worship him. Look. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we're not to make, we are not to create our own gods that we worship. You ever heard anybody say, my, well, my God would never. Well, unless your God is described by all of the attributes of God in the Word of God, you have just made up an idol that you're worshiping. For some people, God is only love the way they understand love. I'm not saying He's not love. But it's a holy love and a righteous love and a just love and a sovereign love. And you go on down the list. See, this command is not prohibiting all art or even all making of an image. You see that in the temple. Two big angels over the mercy seat and the pomegranates and all the beauty that was in the temple. What it's forbidding is us to make images that we bow down and worship. We're not to create our own gods. And listen, you know, you don't have to make a little statue to have an idol. Because a lot of times we do that in our heart, right? I remember one time I was fishing with my son, and we had this great doctor back in Georgia. He was a great doctor, but he he was from India. But he was a great doctor, Dr. Ramesh. Um, And he would let us go fishing on his pond. And uh, one time we went fishing, and he's building this new house on that pond. And so it was going to be big, and it wasn't finished yet. You know how sometimes you don't even have the doors and all in it yet, and you have the frame of the house there. And so we were fishing, and the fish weren't biting. I said, Justin, let's go take a look at that house. And so we put the poles down, and we went and walked in the house, and walked in the lower level of the house, and this is the biggest idol I've ever seen in my life. And I don't know which one of the Hindu gods it was, but it was filling up this room on the lower level sitting there staring at me. And I was like, let's go fishing. I don't need to see any more of this. And we pr- I prayed for his salvation and all that. But, but wow, we're not to make idols that we bow down in worship. God is, the, see, the first commandment warned us against worshiping the wrong God. And this commandment, while, while it warns us of that as well, it warns us against worshiping the wrong way. Beware of worshiping as we choose rather than how he commands. There's a, there was a lot of smoke in the Old Testament around people who decided to do it their own way. Thankfully, pure justice is not executed every time. We are not to make up our own gods, physical or mental. Paul's, think about Paul in Athens when he was preaching in Athens. What caused him to preach the gospel in Athens? The spur was that his spirit was provoked because the city was full of idols. The pantheon of the gods and all of these statues all around him. 
And he perceived that, he told him, he's very kind, very winsome. And perceived that you are very religious. This God you worship in ignorance, let me explain him to you. That's what Paul did. Go read Acts 17. It's a great, it's a great sermon. But we're not to make up our own gods and we're not to bow down and worship them. We can worship false God, false gods. Or we can worship the true God the wrong way and both break this commandment. Think about the golden calf. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read in Exodus 32. And Moses was on the mountain too long and the Israelites got Aaron to build them a golden calf. And they called it Yahweh. They called it the Lord. So they were using the right name. But they attached it to the wrong thing and therefore worshipped in the wrong way. So worshipping false gods or worshipping the true God in a false way is both a violation of the second commandment. If you want, to, if you want some homework to do, go watch the documentary Spirit and Truth. We did a whole Sunday school series on that documentary. But if you haven't seen it, go watch Spirit and Truth and it will expand upon that for you. Listen, I'll say one more thing about false gods. Beware of assigning power to religious symbols. I'm going to meddle a little bit. Like a cross necklace. If you're wearing a cross necklace because you think it will protect you, take it off now. We don't hope in objects. We hope in, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wearing a cross necklace or jewelry or anything like that. But if it is sort of this thing that's going to protect you, it's taken on a bad tinge. St. Christopher's and all that. There's a whole bunch of layers to that that we're not getting into this morning. See, we think, I mean, you think that protects you when you do? You've been watching too many vampire movies. Look to the Lord, not things. What did the, Israel took the Ark of the Covenant and turned it into an idol. They took the symbol of the gospel with the snake on the pole and turned that into an idol. They saw that this, that thing healed them instead of God healing them. There's so much danger here. We so easily, our hearts are idol factories, Calvin said. And we have to be careful that we're worshiping the true God and that we're worshiping His way. So do you guard God's worship by only seeking to worship Him as His Word commands? Thirdly, what is the third commandment? Some of y'all getting it right. You're just bashful. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Look at verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? Well, it means to treat it as though it's empty, worthless, common, uh, using it for no good purpose. How do we do this? Well, the simple and most ex- the explanation everybody's familiar with is using God's name as a curse word. If that's common of you, that reveals a heart problem. The Spirit will never lead you to do that. No matter if that's the context you're in. It's not okay. We don't... We, careless use of His name 
or using it as a curse word. I remember one time I used to do a route, and I had a wholesale route that I ran, and I was sitting in front of a buyer in his office, and we weren't engaged in business yet. He was, he was on the phone, and then he popped the phone down and said, Jesus Christ. And I said, Is Lord. And he was like, What? I said, Is Lord. You said Jesus Christ. I said, Is Lord. He said, oh, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to say that in front of you. I said, it's not me you have to worry about. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? He said, I do. I didn't even think about that. He said, I just. And later I found out that he was a professing Christian. But just out of frustration. Why didn't he say, oh, Buddha? Oh, Allah. There's, there's some spiritual warfare going on there. But he was misusing the name of Christ. He was flippantly using it. I'm going to leave the Lord to convict you about how you flippantly use. You, yes, you can do it in texts and posts. How might you do that? OMG. That's a violation. We have to be careful with His name. Holy is His name. His name is exalted above His Word. We are to treat Him as holy. How about another way to break his, this command with false oaths? How about, you ever hear anybody say, I swear to God. Well, if you need to do that for somebody to believe you're telling the truth, something's wrong anyway. But no, don't do that. How about making false claims on God's behalf? God said. Yes, He did. God said. But we go around, we, we try to put more oomph in something that we feel is right when to say, God told me. Be careful, because that's what the false prophets did. Read Jeremiah 23. Here's another way we take God's name in vain, is we claim to be a Christian. We make a profession of faith, but we continue living in intentional sin. See, and that's really what it's talking about. When, uh, one of the heavy things that it's talking about is you, if you profess to be mine, but you deny me with your life, there's no way I'm holding you guiltless. You don't really know me. What, isn't that what Jesus said He would say at the end? That many would come before Him? And claim all these religious works. And he would say, depart from me. I never knew you. You don't want to hear that. See, the Lord put his name on you, Christian, in baptism. And you were marked out as belonging to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we violate the third commandment when we live as though we do not bear God's name. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving, Scripture teaches us. We are to be light and salt. We are to glorify His name. So quickly, are you flippant with God's name? Are you flippant with the name of the Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit? Use God wrongly. With your lips or your life, let the commandment search you. Lord, search me. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And remember, this is thought, word, and deed. Misusing His name can simply happen in my heart. It may not, and hopefully it doesn't make it out of my mouth. And 
My deeds can, uh, my words can dishonor His name. My deeds can dishonor His name. My thoughts can dishonor His name. Fourthly, we're moving on. What's the fourth commandment summarized? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus, look, look back in your, in your, in your Bible. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the Sabbath is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. I'll stop there. I'll let you read the rest. Seventh day was made holy in creation. Yes, this commandment too was written on Adam's heart. Notice the commandment doesn't, doesn't, it says remember. It's not creating something whole cloth here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And look at this. This is something we miss a lot of times. The fourth commandment is just as much about work as it is rest. And a lot of our people need to hear that today. What is the first part of the commandment? Six days you shall work. You should have a strong, good work ethic. Wanting to be paid a lot without working a lot is a sinful thought. You should have a desire to work hard. And yes, it means your job and around your house and all of that. But, but we, we are to work hard for six days so that we need one day in seven for rest. So the first part of the commandment is work. Teach your kids to work. Don't give your kids stuff for nothing. Kids always get mad at me when I start talking like this. Kids, if you get an allowance, you you need to have a list of things you do. Because the world is a place where we are created to work. Parents, teach your kids to work. And then, one day in seven is, is rest. A day when we rest and rejoice. We rest and worship. And this pattern was set by God Himself in creation. Why does it say God rested on the seventh day? Was He tired? Does God get tired? No, He's setting the pattern for His creation. I had to learn this lesson. When we moved out here and started working on the church plant, and I'm working a job, working on the church, and somehow, magically, I'm just going to be enabled to work seven days a week and not die. You've seen the cartoons where the character runs and he hits the wall and slides down in a puddle? That's what happened to me. And I looked back and was like, oh, yeah, that was kind of dumb, wasn't it? That's where us taking Tuesdays off came from, because Sunday's not a day off for me. On Tuesday, we, we take the day off and we rest. And we worship. Yes, we worship with you on Sunday. But you need one day in seven that when you refresh, when you renew. And ordinarily, most of us, that is to be the Lord's Day on the first day of the week on Sunday. It was the seventh day a week until the resurrection is the first day of the week after There's still an application, yes, through Christ, of the fourth commandment. Now it hasn't been totally done away with. We have a day for worship that God has set apart. And in the New Testament, it's called the Lord's Day. When I say it's Jeff's house, what does that mean? It belongs to Jeff. And the construction there in Revelation, the Lord's Day means that day belongs to the Lord. There's still a day for rest and for worship. And, and don't make it a burden. The Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus said. But it was created for man. We all need that. 
pattern was set by God. We, 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 we are to rest. Nothing has taken place in redemption to exist, exempt us from this pattern. We need a day to gather for worship and praise God He's given us one. We need a day to rest for our labors and praise God He's given us one. And if your job calls you to work on the Lord's day, that week you find another day when you take a day of rest. We also, this represents, the Sabbath represents the rest in Christ, the full rest in Christ as well. And there's more we could say upon that. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest of soul. So are you intentionally prioritizing the Lord's Day and honoring Him first in worship and rest and teaching your kids to do so? It's getting harder and harder in the culture because the culture no longer does this. And the culture is trying to squeeze us into its mold. Make us forget how we were created. And what glorifies and honors God is to have a day... His day be a day of worship and rest and a day on which we prioritize Him above what's going on in the world. So are you intentional about prioritizing the Lord's day and honoring Him first? That's the fourth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? Kids, pay special close attention to this one. Very good. Look here. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. A commandment with promise, right? To honor your father and your mother. This command is about giving honor where honor is due. And that's more we're going to talk about. This is about authority structures that God has placed in our lives. And we're to be trained up to be submissive to those. And we'll talk about more of that in Romans 13 next time. But the relationship between parents and child is, is normally the relationship that shapes all the other relationships. Parents have a responsibility to train up their children to submit to God first and under Him to submit to them as they train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The child is to honor the authority given to their parents by God. Now, parents, you have a role in this. We've lost touch with disciplining our kids in a lot of places. We let our kids run wild and think they'll be okay. We let our kids rule the house. When I was selling furniture, I had a family come into the furniture store and loved this leather couch and wanted to buy it. And the 12-year-old said, I don't like it. And they left. It's a good thing they did because they probably would have got a sermon if they had stayed around. The, this, is, this is the first and formative relationship where we learn that God has placed authority structures in the world. Children, listen to me, kids. Children are to honor their parents by giving them their reverence, their obedience, and their gratitude. It comes from Calvin. Cherish your parents. Know that your parents know more than you do. They're, your little brains aren't fully developed yet. When you get 17 and know it all, your brain is still not fully developed yet. So kids, kids when, children, when is the last time you said thank you to your parents? Thank you for sacrificing. Thank you for working. Thank you for providing me shelter and food and clothes. Or do you just presume on them?
Parents, how far does it go if your kid comes up to you and says, I just want to know how much I appreciate you. That is awesomely encouraging. And you should do that. Obey and encourage and thank your parents and reverence them and know their job is hard. Trust them when what they're telling you to do goes against what you think you ought to do. I know there was an age when I thought praying and playing, praying, no, playing in the street was a good idea. You know, it wasn't. Or playing with butcher knives. No, it wasn't a good idea. They know more than you do. Trust them. And, and this vital relationship trains children to live in God's world and the, under the authorities he has placed. Children, do you honor your parents by trusting and joyfully obeying them, confessing it when you fail? Do you go to your parents and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? You should, because you're blowing it in a lot of ways. I know some of us are better than that than others. But we better get used to confessing our sins, hadn't we? We take them to God first and then to those we've sinned against. Do you express gratitude to your parents? And parents, do you actively seek to honor the authority structures God has placed in your life and teach your children to do so? So do you strive to obey all of the authorities God has ordained as long as they do not ask you to sin? We're going to talk about that more next week. What is the sixth commandment? Look at me. Some of us are getting it. The kids are getting it. Listen to me. Look at me. If you can't name these commandments and name them in order, that's your first homework. You need to know this. You shall not murder. Exodus twenty thirteen. It prohibits either personally or unjustly killing another person or causing them to be unjustly killed like David did with Uriah. It would also prohibit failing to protect another person from being unjustly killed when you have the power to do so. So the, the command, command, we're not to kill, but to do everything we can do to protect and promote life. So it prohibits the unjust taking of life and all failure to protect life. There's the positive and negative. But this word, ESV gets it right here, is rightly translated murder. There's another Hebrew word for kill. And look at me. Not all killing is wrong. Not all killing is wrong. The death penalty is not wrong. It is just. Killing in, in a just war is not wrong. It is just. Some of our Marines and, and Army and Navy and Air Force and you name it, Special Force, they have to do that. I mean, look at David and others in the Old Testament that were following God. They had to... Be involved in warfare. Warfare. Not all killing is, is wrong, but unjust taking of life is wrong and not promoting life. This commandment applies to suicide, certainly. That is a sin. Abortion is a sin. Euthanasia is a sin. Human life is precious. We are created in the image of God. We are not to be flippant about life. This culture we're living in is becoming more and more a culture of death. Abortion is paraded as though it's a right. It is not. Euthanasia will become more and more a topic the farther we drift from God. 
No matter what your age is and what state of health you are in, you are valuable in God's sight. And to be honored as created in the image of God. So are you actively guarding your heart against unjust anger? Where does murder start? Jesus taught us that, right? All these violations start in the heart. We think them before we do them or not do them. So are you guarding your heart against unjust anger? If you're unjustly angry with your brother or sister, you've already committed a murder in your heart. Certainly confess it and catch it there. But are you guarding your heart against unjust anger? Jesus teaches us that murder begins in the heart. Are you doing all that you can to preserve and protect life? That would be a proper application of this commandment. Number seven. What is commandment number seven? Just give me one word. Adultery. Not not. There are nots in all of them. Who said not? Shall not commit adultery. Look at verse 14. Now, what does this commandment require? Is this just, this is just when we're married and just the physical act of cheating on our spouse, right? No, remember, this is the genesis of all sexual sin. This commandment is about adultery and underneath adultery, all sexual sin. It requires us to think to speak and to act in line with God's Word when it comes to sexual intimacy. And it forbids all thinking and speaking and acting in a way that's contrary to God's Word. All sexual immorality falls under this command. And that's the way you see the Bible interpreting these commands as you move forward in the Bible. Sexual purity is what is commanded here. Positively, pursue that. And negatively, don't violate that. Let me give you a few scriptures before. I know I haven't been using much other scriptures, but I thought in that context of these days, I better on this one. Let Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Parents, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you too much about this, but the marriage bed is the place for sexual intimacy. And marriage is a man, one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. That is the only righteous expression of sexual intimacy. We have compassion for those who are lost and who need to hear the gospel. We must be strong on the Word of God because God created marriage. We see that in Genesis. And He he protects marriage. It pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. He defines it. He's the Creator. And therefore, we are to define it the way He does. And no, it's appointed for men once to die, women, boys and girls, and then the judgment. So we're, we're well prepared to be witnesses and light and salt in this culture that has just trashed marriage, trashed God's commandments. Do as we, Everybody's in judges now. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. I, I am what I feel like I am. That's hogwash. You am what God says you am. And sometimes we're confused about that and we need help with that, right? We don't need to feed into delusions. 
Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where did I hear that? Law. <clears throat> but I say to you, look how he amplifies it and points us to the heart. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart, in his heart. And flip that, both sexes. If, you, if you're looking on another with lust, other than your spouse, I'm not married yet. Well, then don't look at anyone this way. But Jesus says it happens in the heart. Murder happens in the heart. All these things happen in the heart before they happen in the life. And it can, adultery is committed with the eyes before it's committed with the body parts. I should not have to explain to you how evil pornography is. Wretched, evil, vile, violation of God's commandments. And if, if you claim to follow Christ and you're involved in that, you know what? You have everything necessary. to. You're not trapped. You have everything necessary to repent and trust Christ. You might need help with that. But that is a violation of God's commandments. That is a reason for judgment. And every other sexual sin. Why is it so serious? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Praise God. After that, it says, And such were some of you. You're saying you're not giving me any gospel. I'm like, Yes, I know I'm not. I'm doing that on purpose. I want you to feel the weight of the law. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about the gospel there. Are you actively engaged in thinking and speaking and acting in line with God's word when it comes to sexual intimacy? This command not only requires avoiding sexual immorality, but actively pursuing sexual purity in thought, word, and deed. So you as yourself are to be actively pursuing this purity and helping others to do so. Why would I say that? Dress. Modestly dress in a way that honors the Lord. I'm not saying you have to wear a burqa or any of that stuff. But just be careful about how you dress. It can be, and I'm saying guys and girls. Because it becomes a real stumbling block to people. You don't have to show everybody everything you got. In fact, we don't want to see it. If we do, we're sinning. Okay? We have a spouse. That's where that goes. Can you see how dark it is in the world and how it's infiltrated into the church and squished down God's commands? But this stuff is serious. That's why I'm wanting you to have a refresher on it. What is the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Not taking anything without permission that does not belong to you. That can be money. That can be goods. That can be time. That can be people. <coughs> Steal a person's spouse. How about stealing people to sell them in some form of slavery? And by the way, this is a side note. The, the kind of slavery that took place in America was never justified by the Word of God. It was called man-stealing and it was punishable by death. Everyone involved in that kind of chattel slavery should have been executed. 
God's word never justified that. And that wasn't the kind of slavery Paul's talking about in the New Testament. I'll move on. So my duty is, listen, the negative is I'm not to take things that don't belong to me. That can be time. If you're working for somebody and they're paying you for eight hours of work, guess what you owe them? Maybe nine or ten. I'm not joking. Those who come early and stay later, the ones who get promoted and... See, we've, we've watered down a work ethic to these days. We don't want to work. We want to start at the top. We want to get paid a lot. We want to sit around and TikTok all the time. When you're at work, working, put that phone away and don't mess with it unless it's emergency. When you're driving, listen, don't, let, please don't let me see any of you people from Grace Church going down the road like this with your phone in front of your steering wheel. Sermon coming. Blow the horn and say, that's not respecting life. That's not respecting any of these commandments. Don't be distracted drivers. And for the sake of those who ride bicycles, it's a dangerous time to ride a bicycle down the road. Everybody with their head in their phones and you think you might miss something, you've got to hold it in front of you because it's not that important. I see, I see it's, and it's not just young people. I see people go down to the beach and they walk down the beach like this. If somebody dug a big hole in front of them, they go right in it. Why are you going to the beach if you're going to do this? Where? How did I get there? Don't take anything without permission. And positive duty. Here's the positive duty. Again, it falls into the Sabbath commandment. Work hard to earn a living so that you can be a generous giver. Don't be a freeloader. That's why all the young people love socialism. Number one, they don't understand it. And don't understand how it works out. And they want to just be given everything. Let somebody else work and take care of me. What if everybody did that? Y'all starved there. But being a freeloader is violating this commandment. Not wanting to work is violating this commandment. Wanting a system of government that steals from some to give to others is violating this commandment. Look how Paul interpreted it in Ephesians 4.28. I promise you I'm not going to go too much longer. Let the thief no, no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so, so, that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we shall not steal. What's the ninth commandment? Shall not false witness. So you want to boil it down to lying. That's okay. You shall not lie or you shall not bear False witness against your neighbor. This forbids all untruth. It forbids all forms of lying, which would include gossip. Isn't it funny that gossip is in the same sin list as homosexuality and other things? It requires us to maintain and promote the truth at all times. Yes, especially when testifying in court. But in all other times, remember, all like sins are forbidden. It forbids all forms of lying. And yes, listen, there is a God, so there is a such thing as truth. There's truth and lies. And a lot of people are living here and loving it. Work hard to earn a living and be a generous giver. And I'm under the wrong commandment. This commandment requires us to maintain and promote truth. Uh, what are the, you, have you, in Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. 
One of those seven is a lying tongue. That's how serious it is. And it comes back to this command. So are you guarding your tongue against lying? Are you striving to promote the truth? Will you tell the truth when it's inconvenient? Will you tell the truth when it might cost you friends? Will you tell the truth when it's not popular? You'll never be a gospel witness if you won't. God forbids lying and commands truth. And then the last one, I'm, I'm moving. It's hard to dwell with no gospel, isn't it? We'll get there. What's the tenth commandment? Y'all are bashful. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant, male servant, ox, donkey, or anything else. You shall not covet. So this commandment forbids first most... First thing it forbids is all discontentment. Being discontent is a sin. I'll be happy when reveals a covetous heart if you're a Christian. See, it forbids all discontent with our own situation as well as envying the good of our neighbor. Here's the key. Thinking we would be happy if we had what they have. It commands contentment in God and what He has provided and trusting Him with our future and not desiring things to the extent that we think they'll make us happy so we will violate God's commands to get them. See, it's not wrong to, uh, to, to, to submit it to the Lord and under the Lord. It's not wrong to uh, want a better house or a better car or a better job. As, you, as long as that's submitted to the Lord, you know it's not going to be the, the secret to your happiness. And you're seeking it for the provision of your family. There's a lot of good ways. So not all, not all desiring is wrong. There's a right way to desire. But this is one where I'm, idolat- I'm, I'm idolatrous in my desire. I'm thinking, I must have this thing to be happy. I'm, I'm envious against my neighbor because he has it and I don't. That's coveting. Not happy for the success of my neighbor or my friends. Are you content in God? Seek to honor and glorify Him in everything you do and let Him fill in the blanks. Whatever your job is, seek to be excellent for His glory and let Him decide what He does with that. Most times that will result in promotion, but sometimes not, especially if they know why you're doing it. But you leave all that to Him. Are you content or envious, jealous, thinking you should have more? Thinking you'll be happy when you do have more? I'll be happy when kind of heart. See, the first commandment was the foundation of all the other commandments. And the tenth commandment forbids the root of the violation of all of the other commandments. Because why would I have another God besides God? Because I'm dissatisfied. I'm discontent. I want to fashion a God that's easy to please and that will do things for me like the way I think they should be done. Why would I not worship His way? Well, I want to do it my way. I think it's better. I'm discontent with His ways and His name and His day. Why, why would I murder someone? I murder to get what they have most of the time or to get back my honor or whatever. See, the covetousness is sort of the, 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 the root of 
the violation of the other commandments. We, we desire for what others have to the extent that we will murder, commit adultery, steal, lie to get it. Summary, it's a summary of what has come before. It is impossible to covet and love the Lord and neighbor. Colossians 3.5, coveting is idolatry. Greed. It is having other gods before him. So you see, true obedience is a matter of the heart. So are you content or are you envious? Do you think you'd be happier if you had something else? Do you not have the ability in God to be happy and contented in Him in the situation you find yourself? That's a dangerous place to be. Do you love and seek God over all? That's where true happiness is found. That is just a summary about how did you do? Do you keep any of those fully? Do you know all? You're, you're, you're breaking His commandments if you don't know them. Okay? Imagine trying to play football without knowing the rules. Black, 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 black. You don't know what you're doing. If you don't know the commandments, you're breaking them. Have you kept all of them in thought, word, and deed? Think about this. When it says, you shall not steal and you steal, what are you? You shall not lie and you lie. What are you? You see how that works? Here's my main point. And I hope you all have seen this and embraced this. Larger Catechism 149. Is any man or woman or boy or girl, is any person, is anybody in all of mankind under Jesus... Is any man able to perfectly keep the commandments of God? The answer, look at this. No man, you can say no person if you want to. No man is able. Now watch this. Either of himself or by any grace received in this life, perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. So if, 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 you're, if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, if, if, you're, if you're depending upon your own performance, that your good works will outweigh your bad works and all of that nonsense, I hope by at least by this summary of the commandments this morning, you can see that that's not going to work out for you. Think of the law as a chain. Ten links. And if you break one of those links, what happens to the chain? It's broken. We've all broken His law. And it's outside of Christ, you have nowhere to go with that. Because you can't fix it. You can't hope in yourself, in your own performance. You can't erase your sin. Because it's before God. We've all violated His commandments in thought, word, and deed. And if you're not rested in Christ, you have nowhere to go with that. So, I'm going to point you to Christ in just a minute. But even those of us who do know Christ, look at it. That... And in, in the answer, or by any grace received in this life. None of us are glorified yet. This is why we have to live before the throne of grace. This is why we have to go daily confessing our sin of thought, word, and deed. Yes, generally like that, and specifically as He has revealed them to you. Trusting that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the habit of the godly soul is confession. Psalm 32. Psalm 51. See, here's, here's my main point. 
And if you don't get this, you don't understand. We all fail the test. That's what Paul means. When he says, when he says all have sinned, sin is lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. We've, we've all failed to keep his law in thought, word, and deed. And we don't even get a start at it, do we? Especially, well, I think about myself before I came to Christ and just, oh my gosh, the vileness that never came out, much less that that did. We all failed the test. We all lacked conformity to the law and we all transgress it. And listen, hopefully God has convinced you of that in general. And maybe this morning as we're walking through these commandments, he's convicted you of some specific things. So if, if you're not a Christian, I want you to cry out to him for mercy. And if you are a Christian, I want you to confess your sins to him. And I'm going to give you a few minutes because we're about to transition to the Lord's Supper. So I'm just going to be quiet and give you a few minutes before the Lord. And anything, he, any conviction he's brought to your mind, take that to him and confess your sin. This is what it means that if we examined ourselves, right, we would not be judged. We partake of the supper rightly when we come having examined ourselves and confessed our sin to the Lord. And therefore, we're, we're, we are rested in his grace and, and ready for his supper don't worry you're going to get the gospel in a few minutes but go before the lord now confess any sin that he's brought to your heart and then we will move on and take communion together but i'll give you a few minutes to do business with the lord Father, we, we thank you for your faithfulness to, as your children, to search us and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us and point that out to us so that we can confess it and walk in your strength to forsake it, that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We, we do bow before you this morning and confess our sins of thought, of word, and of deed. I pray for those who maybe are seeing for the first time that they fall short of your commandments, that they are under your condemnation, that they need a Savior, that they would go before you and cry out to you like the tax collector did, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and that you would work faith and repentance in their heart through the gospel. Those of us who do know you, Lord, may we be quicker 
to confess quicker to run to your throne of grace, more equipped and realize just how, even as your children on our performance in our sanctification or growth in grace, how, how, fall, how far we fall short so that we'll live before your throne of grace, depending upon the righteousness of Christ, depending upon the forgiveness that is ours in Him, depending upon the power of the Spirit to grow us in saying no to sin, And yes, to righteousness. So Lord, you know the need of every heart here and every heart who is listening over the live stream and every heart who will hear the recording. You know their needs. Work in their hearts. Work in their hearts. According to the need. Work repentance and faith. Lift high your son. And draw all kinds of people to yourself. So we thank you, Lord. For your grace. Even having a weak faith in Christ. That being enough. Because Christ is enough. Christ is our sufficiency. Our strength. Our forgiveness. Our redemption. Our sanctification. We bow before you. We confess our sins. And we trust in your mercy. Because you promise it in your word. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. If you have confessed your sins before God, as a child of God, according to the Word of God, you have been forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Believe His Word. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are not a believer in Christ this morning, He will hear that confession, that broken heart, that contrite heart that comes before Him and cries, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you take that conviction and turn to Christ with it and receive Him as your Savior, as your Lord. So we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. And uh, guys, when the recording goes out, make sure the Lord's Supper goes out too or it's just a law sermon. But um, we're transitioning to the Lord's Supper. And what the Lord's Supper is, is, is doing is proclaiming Christ's death. Until he comes. He's coming again. So what we have here is what Christ transformed that Passover meal into. When, when he took that Passover meal that commemorated their being delivered from Egypt. And he desired to have one more Passover with his disciples. And when he br- took that bread and broke it and said, this is my body. He showed himself as the true and greater Savior and the true and greater Exodus, the fulfillment of that old covenant, Passover. That Passover lamb that was sacrificed under the old covenant in and of itself did not take away sin. It covered and pointed to the Messiah to come, the true Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So having that Passover meal transformed, what we have before us is the new covenant meal. The bread being his broken body. He paid, he took the curse that was owed us. He, he was broken and crushed for us. And the blood representing his life being poured out. So when the New Testament talks about our sins are washed away in his blood, it means in, he is the sacrificial lamb that brought us propitiation, expiation, reconciliation with God. 
Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day. And as often as we take this meal, we proclaim His death for us. So this meal is for those who are trusting in Him. There's no magic. Like if, you, if you're an unbeliever, this will do nothing for you. Right? Nothing positive for you. Because this is just, this, this is symbols. These are symbols of Christ. We feed on Christ in our hearts by faith as we partake of these symbols. This is a meal for Christians. And one of the things that we're saying when we take the meal, like baptism, when we take the meal, we're saying, I'm trusting in Jesus. So if you're not trusting in Jesus, let it pass. Hear the gospel in it. Pay attention. Listen. I'm going to preach the gospel to you in the midst of the supper. Right? Already am. But if you are a believer, and even if you're not a member of Grace Church, if you're from a like-minded church, if you are of like faith, if you're not under discipline and running, you're not withholding sin from the Lord, come to the table. Receive the elements. Have your faith fortified. See, it's not these elements that save you. It's Christ that saves you. But our faith is renewed and strengthened as we partake of His meal with Him. He's here fellowshipping and communing with us and spiritually present in the supper such that we feed on Him by faith in our hearts as we renew our trust in His broken body and His shed blood, His death for us. The Gospel is... Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised the third day. And Paul says it's in this gospel that you are saved if you are trusting in this Christ that He preached. Kids, I mean, you you all know it, John 3.16, right? But really it should be this way. In this manner God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us. That whosoever believes or trusts in him, negative, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So the message of the supper is look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. Know that you can't fix it. You need a Savior. And if you are a Christian, you have one who is Jesus. So we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. And uh, the men are going to pass out the elements as we sing. You just stay seated as the elements are passed out. And just know, here's how it's set up. All of the bread is gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that if you have a, a sensitivity. And then in the plates, the outer ring is wine and the inside ring is juice. It might not look exactly like this. I don't know if it does. But just know that the outer ring is wine and then the inside portion is juice. So take it as you need whichever one of those works for you. But um, let's, let's, let's go before the Lord and sing his praise. But stay seated and do that as the men pass out the elements. And then we will, par- we will pray and participate in the Lord's Supper.
Read from Isaiah 53 for you before we take the supper. It says this about Christ. And think about this. Go back and read all of Isaiah 53. This was written some 700 years before Christ came. And in it is his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection pointing to God's servant who would save his people. But it says this in chapter, just a few verses in chapter 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about that. My sin, I'm thinking about myself. My sin being laid upon Christ and not me. You can think about that. If you're trusting in Christ, your sin went to the cross with Him. If your hope is in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus, your sin went to the cross with Him. Why did He come? He came, He was buried in a low, uh, He was born in a low estate. Yes, He was buried in a low estate as well. But He was born in a low estate under His own law to fulfill that law, to fulfill all righteousness so that we would have a righteousness that we don't have. For the glory of the Father and the good of His people, He lived in perfect. He's the one who kept all those commands we were talking about in thought, word, and deed. He did everything He did for love of God and neighbor, love of His enemies, which would be His brothers and sisters, His children. So Christ fulfilled all righteousness, and then as the Lamb of God, He went to that cross and died and paid the penalty. It wasn't just the physical suffering, but it was that cup that He feared in the garden that made Him sweat blood of the wrath of God being poured out on Him for all the sins of all of His people. He took our eternal hell upon Himself. And He could drink that cup dry. Listen, He could drink it dry because He was God and man. He was the God-man. He could never have atoned for our sin if He wasn't God and reconciled us to God. And He could have never done it if He wasn't man representing us and reconciling us to God. But because He was, He could say before He left the cross, it is finished. And yes, he was buried, ending his humiliation. And the third day he rose again, proving it all true. And he's coming again someday. We proclaim his death until he comes when we partake of this supper. So let's pray right quick and we will eat. Lord, thank you for these common elements of bread and wine and juice. We pray that you, by your power, would use them as a means of grace. That you would help us to see Christ in them. Christ's broken body. Christ shed blood. Use them as gospel instruments that our hope might be in Christ and in Christ alone. We thank you for hope for sinners. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to save sinners. And we look to you and rest in your grace. 
Paul shares with us what's called the words of institution a lot of times. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11:23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. This, remember, this is part of the Passover meal. And he transformed it. He took bread on the night when he was betrayed. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Of me, Child of God, eat this bread and believe that your sin penalty has been paid, that he was broken for you. And yes, I forgot to give it to the music team. I'm dialed in on you this morning. Hey, listen, nobody does everything right. And I certainly don't, right? Got one of the songs wrong. But anyway, don't get distracted. Mike will take care of it. Believe Christ was broken for you. That He took the curse that you deserve. That your sins went to the cross with Him. And He paid your penalty. So eat and remember and in your heart feed on Christ. Eat and remember Christ. Paul says this, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you often as you do it in remembrance of me. Drink this cup and believe that all your sins have been washed away by Christ's sacrifice. His blood was poured out. He died for you. Drink and remember Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being crushed for us, for having your body broken and your blood poured out, for dying for us. A soul that sins shall die, your word says, and yet you stepped into the gap. For we who were your enemies and took our curse upon yourself, that we might be freed from it, forgiven for all of our sins, adopted into the family of God, clothed in your righteousness. Our sin was imputed to you that your righteousness might be imputed to us and that we can leave this supper remembering, growing in and resting in the fact that before the judgment bar of God, our record is Christ's record. Righteous in thought, word, and deed through our mediator, our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are not trusting in you this morning. Maybe they don't know it. Maybe they think they are. Work conversion in their hearts. And for those of us who are trusting you, grow us in your grace and make us light and salt for you. Help us all to hope, Lord Jesus, in you and in you alone for the forgiveness and reconciliation that we all need. Thank you for living for us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for taking the curse that was due us. Thank you for rising from the dead the third day, proving it all true, rising for our justification. Thank you for the fact that you reigned for us and you are returning for us someday. That gives us great hope. And we praise and thank you. Help us to praise and thank you with our lives as well.